Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Nobel laureate Marty Chalfie of Columbia University, and we discuss the importance of perseverance. I worked in a lab the summer after my junior year, and it was a disaster. I did experiments all summer and they never worked. What continues to excite him about his work? I get excited about having ideas and having the rare time when those ideas actually work. It's, it, it's really terrific. Traditions he wished he'd kept up. Every time the paper was accepted, uh, I'd go into his office and he'd take out the bottle of scotch whiskey uh, from his desk and we get out the five or ten ml beakers the really tiny ones and we'd have a little beaker uh, to sort of toast that the uh, that this has worked and his dream alternative career I, think I would love to be a professional guitarist but i'm never going to get to that place so that's okay all on this episode of the microscopists Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by Nobel laureate, uh, professor at University of Columbia, Marty Chalfie. Marty, how are you today? I'm quite good, Peter. Good to be talking with you. I'm going to ask, you obviously studied back in the UK. When was the last time you were in the UK? Well, the last time was probably about five or six years ago, visiting friends, but... uh... I, when I was studying there, that was between 77 and 82, so quite a long time ago for that. Yeah, so, so you, you still do get over and then... Every once in a while, like everyone else, not traveling during the pandemic, but uh, yeah. looking forward to it in the future. And do you miss the UK? I do. It, it, it was very interesting living in Cambridge, uh, not only for the science, which was quite wonderful, but it was also because I, I was in a, I was in an unusual state in the sense that I didn't care about English politics and I, because there was a way I didn't care about US politics. So it was sort of apolitical. It was also that I found that my inhibitions went away in certain regards. So uh, I've always liked folk music, music in general. Um, In the United States, if I went to a concert, I would, uh, even a small concert, I would never feel comfortable going and talking to the performer. But I found that when I was in England, those inhibitions went away. And that if I listened to something or someone and I liked what they were playing and I wanted to find out more about what they were doing or, or anything, I went backstage and talked with them. So I've, I found that my inhibitions uh, were, well, were certainly different uh, when I was there. And I enjoyed that. Uh, it, it was liberating to be in another country. So- I, 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 I'll come on to the science in a minute, but did those 
inhibitions return when you went back to the US? Um, not entirely, uh, but there are there are other things. I, uh, I, 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 I view this as a positive, other people may not. Uh, being away for five years, I lost track of all sports. And so I, when I came back, professional sports, other than maybe basketball as something to watch, were of absolutely no interest to me. And uh, I, I, so I didn't miss them. It was sort of like taking a vacation from it and then realizing mm, I wasn't as interested in that. So there, my interests changed as well. Uh, that, do, do you not miss that, that distraction? I have other distractions <laughs> that I enjoy. So I no, I didn't, I, I, I didn't miss that. I think, you know, part of this, I, there's, uh, when I started my lab in 82, I had a number of wonderful people in it. And two of them, uh, one was a postdoc and the other was uh, a glassware washer, were real fans of the New York Mets baseball team. And a couple of years after the lab started, the, this baseball team, the Mets, were in the World Series. This was very exciting. And these two people were just beside themselves. They were so excited about this. The postdoc, as a young girl, had baked cookies for the ball players and used to go to the ball field and give them out to the thing. And these people didn't have a lot of money. And so when their team that they had been supporting for their whole lives uh, was in this championship, they announced, the team announced, we're only selling tickets mainly to the ticket, the, the season ticket holders. Yep. So all the fans that couldn't afford, uh, you know, corporate people could afford that, but all the real fans couldn't afford, they were left out. And that uh, really made me unhappy about, about that, about how they were treated. And then right after they had won the World Series, they announced we're gonna have all these very expensive boxes for the corporate uh, season ticket holders to have. And so that really, I think maybe more than anything sort of cemented my feeling that I wasn't such a fan of professional sports because it was much more a money-making uh, enterprise. So thinking, so, so you went to the UK in 77, and that was at the LMB. Uh, so what were you doing before you came to the UK? Before that time, I was a graduate student uh, in the physiology department at Harvard, uh, working with a wonderful uh, advisor, Bob Perlman. And we were uh, studying the both the secretion and the biosynthesis of catecholamines from what were really tumors of the adrenal gland from rat. So it was basically neurochemistry, um, and uh, I had worked with him. And Bob was really uh, the perfect person for me to do my graduate work with. Um, I. Uh, so a little bit of the grisly background. Uh, when I was in college, I was, uh, I was interested in sciences. I majored in biochemistry. And I knew that if I wanted to continue on, I had to work in a lab. 
And I worked in a lab the summer after my junior year, and it was a disaster. I did experiments all summer and they never worked. Everything was failure. And at the, uh, the end of the summer, I went to talk with the, the head of the lab and he said, well, you know, there's a couple of weeks before the term starts, go home, rest up, relax, try the experiment one more time when you get back and see if after being refreshed, it, it works. And I did all this, I came back and was enthusiastic, tried it one more time and failed completely. And I decided that's the end of science for me. I have proven to myself that I am not a scientist because I can't do experiments. Of course, I never asked for help. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was terribly naive about the whole thing, but my confidence disappeared. I did a bunch of part-time jobs. And then um, eventually one of the jobs I got was to be a high school teacher. So for a couple of years, I was a high school teacher. I made a discovery uh, when I was a high school teacher. And that is that high school students have summer vacation, but high school teachers have to find a job over the summer. And a friend suggested a lab at Yale. And I went to work in this lab for the summer. And without going into the details of that, the experiment worked. It was an experiment that I had thought up or had wondered about, found somebody to give me the right advice about it. And I got a lot of help from other people, but the experiment worked. It got me excited enough to apply for graduate school. But I have to say, when I got to graduate school, I didn't have a lot of confidence. I really was unsure about myself. I was excited about being in graduate school, but I wasn't really sure. Uh, and Bob Perlman was the perfect person to work for. I had a, a desk right outside his office and his office door was virtually always open. And he tolerated me barging in all the time and telling him ideas or questions or anything. And we have had, we had, and we continue to have a very close relationship. And it was something where we were working on things on a daily basis, hourly basis. And he had this desire that no matter when the experiment worked, finished nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, I would call him up and we'd talk about the results and we'd talk about what the next day's experiment would be. So it was this daily um, reinforcement and interaction. And I feel I really needed that as a beginning scientist. And it gave me a lot of confidence. This is in contrast to my uh, postdoc, which was with Sidney Brenner. Sydney accepted you into his lab at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, and you were on your own. He expected people to be independent and working on their own. That doesn't mean that people didn't talk to one another. And there was lots of interactions because there were, and they were incredibly important. But Sydney and I, 
maybe I, I was there for five years. I think we talked about science maybe five times in those five years, about once a year. And uh, many years later, my friend Phil Anderson, who was also a postdoc at the time, and I uh, were comparing notes. And I said to Phil, you know, I talked of Sydney five times in the five years I was there. And Phil said, that's funny, I was there for five years. I talked with him five times in the five years too. And then we simultaneously said to each other, and the longest conversation I had with him was when he had his motorcycle accident and was in a hospital bed so he couldn't walk away. And this is, we found this to be very funny, but that was also the perfect thing at that time. It was wonderful saying, realizing, and I think the LMB was really terrific in this, there were great colleagues. There was any equipment you wanted. They would make something if you didn't have it. There was supply, any supply you needed. You had no excuse. You were on your own in the sense that you, you, you had to be the one to bring up things. And I think that was the right thing to have at the next stage in my development, be able to interact with colleagues, to talk things over, but be ultimately responsible entirely for what was going on and which experiments to choose to do and what directions to go and so on. So it was, to me, I, I, I had sort of the benefits of both of these things. I'm not so sure it would have worked in the opposite order, but the way it did work out, I think was really terrific. So I've got two questions arising from that. The, the first one is, from, from not being very confident and not being very sure of yourself when you came out and you, you came to the UK, that's a giant step for someone who says they haven't got much confidence. I, I didn't think I was terrible, <laughs> but I also didn't think I was the best person <laughs> that was coming there. I mean, you, you come to learn things and the, the opportunity to be able to learn from people at the LMB was was just a phenomenal opportunity uh, and, and, and just a, a quite wonderful thing. And I, I sort of somewhat stumbled on this because a very good friend of mine, Bob Horvitz, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine Physiology with John Sulston and Sidney Brenner in 2002, Bob and I have known each other since high school. And he, he was doing his postdoc with Sidney when I was thinking about where I wanted to go for a postdoc. And it sounded very inviting, and very intriguing uh, to, to come there. So I, I, I view that the time I spent in Bob Perlman's lab as graduate student is not when I became certainly overconfident, but I gained some confidence that I could do some experiments, that I could think about some things. But I think there was a real jump in getting to meet the people and interact with the people that we had in the CL against group and really all through the LMB. It was just a wonderful opportunity. So the second question is, what type of supervisor are you? Well, I am not a, a hands-on uh, person, uh, but I'm certainly not a, um, a person that completely lets people go. I, I'm too interested in the experiments. I want to find out what people are doing. I like 
talking to people about the experiments that they're doing. Uh, to me, uh, and I've had this several times in my career, the, the, it, the wonderful interaction is when a, especially a graduate student, but also a postdoc comes and says, I was thinking about X. I had this idea. I tried it. I got these results. And that's the start of the conversation. So they've gone off and they've thought about something. They've gotten excited about things. They've started working on something. And then we'll be discussing it. Now, the usual outcome of that is, oh, well, that's great. <laughs> Keep going. That, what's the next thing you're going to do? But every once in a while, there may be a difference of opinion where maybe a control should have been done. Maybe there's an alternate uh, hypothesis that should be entertained. And we'll go into a discussion. And the discussion will both give our points of view, will both uh, somewhat be forceful about it. But in the end, we come up with a resolution. Either they've convinced me or I've convinced them. And the very best cases of this are the people that say, yeah, you're right. I should think about that. I'm going to go do that. Bye. There's no ego involved. There's not um, a, oh, you thought of this. I didn't think of this. It's two people rather than one person working on a problem and interacting and developing things. And I have to say, that's the part I really like. But I'm notorious about going around the lab and talking to people and saying, did you get that result yet? Or what, what, what did you find here? Or what are you working on now? And, and talking about it. I love talking about the ideas and uh, trying to see how things go. Uh, it's, uh, so I'm, I'm somewhere in between, I'd say. So obviously, we need to touch on it. Uh, yeah, your Nobel Prize was for the work with green fluorescent proteins, fluorescent proteins. When did you first start to work on that? And how long did it take to get anywhere with it? Because it needs so, that happen overnight. Um, well, yes and no. So uh, in 1989, I went to a seminar and the speaker, Paul Brim, uh, who's an electro, uh, a neurobiologist, was talking about uh, some experiments he was doing on a species related to the jellyfish Aquaria victoria that is the source of GFP. I had never heard of GFP. I had known about the jellyfish and I had known about a corin, which is a bioluminescent molecule that uh, produces blue light, but I had never heard that there was a second protein, uh, GFP. And when it happened that this was, at the time, we were studying several genes in C. elegans. We had started to clone these genes. And one of the first questions we were addressing was, what cell expresses a particular gene? And we, when we did this, uh, we used all the standard methods. We made antibodies. We did in situ hybridization. We used beta-galactosidase, uh, which Malcolm Casadaban had introduced as a marker. And we uh, 
all of these things worked. They were all fine. The problem was, of course, that you had to prepare the samples. You had to fix them and permeabilize them to get the substrates in or the re reagents in. And so you got a very static view. But they answered the question we wanted to have answered, which is, is are the cells we're interested in the ones that express the gene? But this was the problem we were doing. The other thing is CLNs, uh, by this time in 1989, I'd been working on CL against for 12 years. And I had this long list of the wonderful things about the worm that were why we worked on it. And one of the main things was the animal is transparent. So in 1989, I want to know where genes are expressed. I work on a transparent animal. And I'm listening to a, summer, a seminar where somebody is saying, there is a fluorescent protein. You shine blue light on it, you're gonna get green light. At that point, I stopped listening to the seminar. I just fantasized about what, was, what we could do if this thing worked. We could look at living animals, we could do genetic screens, we'd look at protein localization, we'd look at gene expression, all sorts of things would come out. I just fantasized for the whole rest of the time. Got in touch with uh, Douglas Prasher the next day, who I found was the person who was trying to isolate the cDNA that encoded GFP. And uh, we talked about it. We had a wonderful conversation. We decided to uh, collaborate. And this was great. Loved having the idea to use this. He was thinking along the same way, the same line. So it was great, but he didn't have the full cDNA. I waited for his call. Unfortunately, the call came when I was away on sabbatical the next year or later that year. And so Douglas thought I had dropped out of science because he couldn't get in touch with me. And I didn't know that he had called. So I thought he did not succeed in getting the cDNA. So nothing happened for three years. Wow. And then but I still had this idea. I talked with various people. One person I, I really enjoyed talking to about this was Woody Hastings, who is just a wonderful expert in uh, bioluminescence and fluorescence and everything at, at Harvard. I had actually taken a course from him when I was an undergraduate, an, an exceptionally nice person. And uh, I would talk to him, what other fluorescent molecules are there, maybe we should, could use something else. And in October of 1992, uh, we had the new graduate students come in, or September or so, the new graduate students came in and they do rotations in lab. And I had been talking with one, Gia Eskirkin, and Gia had just finished her master's degree in our chemical engineering department at Columbia and decided to get a PhD in biology. But her chemical engineering master's degree had been on fluorescence. So I trotted out this old idea for her and said, well, it's too bad. Douglas hasn't gotten back in touch with me. It probably didn't work, but we should look for other things. And fortuitously, 
the university has just put on our computers Medline, which was the precursor of PubMed. And so I said, let's go look and see if there's any articles about fluorescent protein. So we put that in, search for fluorescent protein. And the first paper that comes up is a paper published earlier that year by Douglas Prasher saying, here's the full length cDNA for GFP. So he had gotten it, but he had lost track of me. The paper had one remarkable thing that is usually not included in most papers. It had his new phone number. So I called him up. We renewed our collaboration and he sent us the cDNA clone that he had. And I gave it to Gia with the help of other people in the lab to help her do the cloning, she put it into E. coli. And then after she had transformed E. coli, she looked at them in our microscope. We had a fluorescence microscope. It was old. It had too much glass in the light path. It was a not very good machine. And so she thought, what? I was going to ask what microscope it was, but I bet I'm not. <laughs> no, I don't think that's a good idea, but it was sort of old. And, um, but she looked at it. She didn't know if her experiment worked or not, but she thought, this is not a, as good a microscope as I used to have in my old lab. And so she took the sample down to her old lab and she looked at it there and it was clear that it had worked. She had made green fluorescent E. coli. This is one of the very rare times when the first time the experiment is done, it works. And that actually is what happened. So although it did take almost three years from the time I heard the seminar and talked to Douglas Pressure about it, it actually was about one month or even less from the time he sent us the things because we were very fortunate and what her experiment said was you didn't need anything other than the GFP sequence. You didn't need a converting enzyme. You didn't need other situations. You just needed to express the polypeptide. And of course that was something that no one knew about. They knew that the uh, chromophore for the molecule was made from the primary amino acid sequence. They knew it was also a rearrangement of the peptide backbone, making a five-membered ring, and no one understood how that was made. And they thought, well, there must be some enzymatic change. There must be some converting enzyme. And so it will not work. So if the experiment had not worked, but the conclusion was going to be, well, there must be a converting enzyme but the experiment worked. It is its own converting enzyme. That's it, and it is quite mind-blowing. I, I think you could put all those obstacles in the way and say, well, it's gonna need this, bacteria is not gonna have the right mechanisms, the right mechanics to, to convert it into a fluorescent protein, let alone going into any other species, you know? And it would have been easy to talk yourself out of that experiment. And as you suck it and see, was the quickest way to find out. Yes, and it's also, it's not something you can write a grant for. 
because the grant would say, we want to see if this works. And they would have said, you don't have any preliminary evidence. <laughs> the preliminary evidence isn't working. Um, so it was just go try it. But I subsequently have found that three other groups, at least three other groups, tried to do the same thing, to get GFP to work as a marker. And they had contacted uh, Douglas and gotten the cDNA from him. Now, the cDNA that he gave out was in a Lambda clone, and it had the cDNA, but it also had flanking the coding region uh, some extra jellyfish sequence. Uh, the other groups made their constructs wanting, I, I, I've often put it that we did our, uh, they were careful and we were sloppy. And by that, I mean, if you want to make really good copies of DNA, you hire an expert. E. coli is an expert in making good copies of DNA. It's done so for eons. And so they put the sequence into a plasmid or just grew the lambda clone. But that sequence brought, gave um, the fragment that was the coding sequence and the adjacent sequences to it. For reasons that I can't really explain other than just hmm. out and out fear, I, I didn't want to have anything extra. So I suggested to Gia that she use PCR to just amplify up the coding sequence and not have anything else from the Lambda clone. And then use that with an appropriate promoter to drive the expression. And uh, so the other people all had the flanking sequences and we did not. And there's something in those flanking sequences that make it not work. So they did their experiments, it didn't work. And then you go back to the old hypothesis, which is there must be a converting enzyme. It didn't work that much. And now it's not as exciting. But we were just exceptionally fortunate because what were we going to do? We were going to take all the DNA. The, here, the problem with using just amplifying the DNA by polymerase chain reaction is that at the time, the copying of the DNA was not always accurate. So you put in mistakes, but I didn't care because we were gonna put this into millions upon millions of bacteria. So the bad stuff, okay, that wouldn't work. We would yeah. get enough of the good stuff. Some of the bacteria, if it worked on its own, were going to be green. And that's in fact what happened. So that's what I mean by being sloppy. We didn't care if there was a lot of sequence or most or maybe almost all as bad sequence, as long as there was some good sequence. And we were pretty sure there was going to be some. And that's in fact happened. But the people that added that extra part didn't get a torque. So yes, we were exceptionally lucky in many respects. And, and, and maybe slightly lucky your grad student knew where there was a better microscope. Because that's otherwise true they too. could have said it failed. Because <laughs> they would have been none the wiser, and you'd have had it. It would have been there, and you wouldn't have seen it. Wow. 
So yeah, Gia is a very smart person. <laughs> what would you say has been the most exciting period of your career? You know, I, I, I feel that everything is an exciting period in my career. People look at the Nobel and they think, oh, that must be the most exciting thing. And it was exciting to think about GFP, to actually have the experiment work. But we've worked on a number of things. And I have to say, I get excited about all of those. I get excited about having ideas and having the rare time when those ideas actually work. It's, it, it's really terrific. So um, I think we're always in a, 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 a situation where things are exciting. It, GFP clearly was the most impactful thing that we worked on, but we worked on a number of things. And when things sort of give you new insights or new ideas, uh, I, I find that very exciting. So I, I don't think I, I'd pick anyone. Uh, it's, it's like saying, which one of your children do you like the best? Uh, but That was my I, next question. Well, I only have one child and I do like her the best. So that's wonderful. <laughs> Actually thinking of child, I, I was gonna go somewhere. So I was thinking, cause you got children. Obviously you're, you're married. And I believe your wife allowed you to cite the un, unpublished work on that, on, on the biggest, so the most cited what, what we did, uh, so after Gia uh, had shown that GFP could work on its own, expressed in bacteria, uh, a technician in the lab, Jan Tu, uh, put GFP into C. elegans, and we were able to label the cells that we've been working on most of the time I've had a lab, which are the cells that sense touch in C. elegans. And we were able to show it worked in C. elegans. And at that point, we knew it would work. It wasn't specific to one organism or another. We had it in E. coli, we had it in worms. We already knew it worked in jellyfish. And um, we started to write up the paper. And as you know, writing up a paper takes some time and everything, uh, I started telling people. And people started asking, could they get it? And in fact, uh, although the paper eventually came out in February of 1994, we have a newsletter in the CL against field uh, called the Worm Breeders Gazette, or we used to. And in it, the October 1993 issue of that, I told the world about GFP and said, if you want it, write me a letter, we'll work through this thing. So people were all people, so people knew about it. And we were already distributing uh, aliquots. Now, what we had shown was that GFP could be driven by a promoter of a gene. Thing. And so we could see where a gene was expressed. But there were many other experiments to do. And other people started doing them. And one of the most important experiments was done by my wife, Tula Hazelrig, working in fruit flies, in which she wasn't as interested in where what cell expresses a given gene, but rather the gene makes a protein. Where does that protein go? 
And so she made what's called a fusion in which the protein she was interested in was linked to GFP. So wherever G uh, that protein went, she could follow it. And her particular protein was a really exciting one because it was made by what was called the nurse cells in the ovary of fruit flies and then brought into the developing oocyte. So she could see GFP protein made in one part of the developing germ cells and then shunted over to the developing oocyte. She could actually watch it move. And this was a very exciting thing. She also did a very important experiment. How do you know that what you're looking at is actually anything related to reality? Well, in her case, her, she knew that if she got rid of her protein, then the embryos didn't develop. They just died. If she put the wild type, the normal protein into the animal, then of course they lived. If she put the wild type protein hooked up with GFP, they lived. So that says that GFP attached to the protein still allowed the protein to do its job. And so it was very important control. Well, when we finally finished writing the paper and it was accepted, we wanted to put into it uh, the news that various people had gotten back to us about that said GFP worked in their system. So it wasn't just a couple of places, it was quite a few places. And so I wrote to people and I said, I'd like to cite your unpublished work. And they said, well, look, you gave us this thing before you published it, of course you can do that. Except my wife, who has a wonderful sense of humor, wrote this letter saying that I had to, in order to cite their work, I had to um, make coffee every Saturday for two months. I had to take out the, I had to, prepare a special French dinner and I had to take out the garbage nightly for a month. And this was very funny and I've shown this several times in talks, but in fact, it was not the letter that was sent to Science Magazine giving her permission <laughs> for us to cite her work, but uh, it, 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 it was very amusing and uh, she knew when to put the pressure on. So did you live up to it? Did you? I'm, so I have taken out the garbage an enormous number of times. I've made coffee a, 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 a quite a lot of times. The French dinner, I'm not so sure, but I have cooked other meals and I'm going to declare that those were French dinners, even though they may have pasta in them or something else. But I'm sure I cooked some French thing at some time or another. She will debate this vociferously, but I think that, uh, I, I would say that I, I, I would declare that I have uh, lived up to the agreement. In any case, we cited her work. And her work actually came out about four months later, uh, published, and, and was really the second paper that utilized GFP, and, but this time talking about it as a protein fusion. So on the making food, who cooks at home? We both do. She cooks a little bit more because she's a better cook. 
but uh, I, 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 I tend to, to cook a fair amount and uh, we, we try to share things. And what's your, uh, God, what's your signature dish? What's your favorite meal that you cook? Yeah. Um, uh, recently, there's, um, there, there's been a sort of a single dish uh, gnocchi with Brussels sprouts that uh, we've, we've liked a lot. So I cook that every once in a while. There'll be, I'm, I'm sort of addicted to the New York Times cooking uh, information. So every once in a while when there's something there, I'll try to cook something there, whether it's a candy or cookies or things like that. These are dangerous things to cook, but uh, um, I don't have a particular, I, I, I have a, a particular favorite dish uh, but it's it's a spaghetti casserole that my mother used to make, and uh, I uh, it it was all it was sort of the comfort food at home. It remains the comfort food. We don't make it that often, but it is it it's 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 one of those nice things to make. Which is brilliant. I'm going to go back. You said with the New York Times, you look at the they make cookies, the candies, and yet you're doing gnocchi with Brussels sprouts. That's because I, I, the cookies and candies are not that frequent <laughs> as they should not be. Uh, I, I'm sorry, gnocchi and Brussels sprouts doesn't sound like that should be very often either. Uh, well, you know, during the pandemic, it was a good thing to make as, as, as other types of things. There, there was actually recently a wonderful recipe for a, a and Indian style nachos, which we made, which we quite liked. And so there were all sorts of exciting things to, to just try. Okay, so you know, if you eat out, what would be your favorite food style if you were to go out and eat? That's, that's very interesting. Um, we don't eat a lot of meat at home, so... Uh, Basically, it's not so much a style, but uh, I, 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 a, I, I really like lamb chops. <laughs> Usually when I go out, I, I often get uh, lamb chops. Um, I, Mint sauce? Um, you know, in the United States, it's mint jelly, which is sweet, as opposed to the English or the, the British sort of mint sauce, which is vinegary. Yeah. Um, I, I tend not to do either, um, but uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm quite open to all sorts of things. I, I really like sushi. I really like uh, Korean food. I like uh, just a whole variety of things. Uh, one of the things I don't get enough of that I enjoy doing, uh, going to is, is Ethiopian food. It's, it's very that's enjoyable. Different. What? That's different. I've not had that answer before. Uh, well, good. <laughs> no, it's quite, it's quite good. Yeah, they, they have a wonderful uh, sort of spongy bread called injera that you basically use to, to eat uh, various types of stews. And I find it very tasty. It's very good. Now I know what to ask uh, one of my staff to bring back when they get, they, we, We've got a consortium which includes Ethiopia and they go over there to do some training. I know what to ask us to bring back now. So red wine or what? Red wine, white wine, beer, 
Go on, what's your uh, alcoholic choice? <sighs> Actually, um, whiskey. Um, but oh, I would yeah. say of the three that you've, you've said, um, probably red wine. Red wine or beer. And the whiskey, scotch, bourbon? Um, actually both. Um, I, when I was a graduate student uh, with Bob Perlman, every time we wrote a paper and every time the paper was accepted, uh, I'd go into his office and he'd take out the bottle of scotch whiskey uh, from his desk and we get out the five or 10 ml beakers, the really tiny ones, and we'd have a little beaker uh, to sort of toast that, the, uh, that this is work. And uh, when, um, so this was our tradition, uh, which I quite like. I, I haven't kept up that tradition, which is unfortunate. I'm glad you did it only when you published and not for every citation, because otherwise... Well, that, that would be good too, but uh, this, is, this is what the tradition was. In any case, when I came to England for my postdoc, I uh, went to uh, off-license or whatever it's called, and, and I uh, was talking to the proprietor and he said, oh, the, this, this is a very good scotch whiskey you should you should uh you should try this and i like that one i should also tell you that when i first came to england before i did my went on and started my postdoc i went on a two-month trip spending most of my time in scotland and at one point i found a small a sampler of sort of airplane sized bottles of different single malts and i had sent them to Bob Perlman, to, in sort of remembering this thing. And then about two years later, Bob and his family came to London and I went down to see him. And we went for a walk and I said, Bob, I know how much you like Scotch whiskey. I have found the very best one. And he said, no, don't, you're not going to change what I like. There's one that I like. It was one of the samples that you sent me. And that's become my favorite. I am absolutely, there's nothing you can say that'll change my mind. And we argued about this for about five or 10 minutes until we discovered we were talking about the same whiskey. Same one. What was it? <laughs> it was Highland Park. Really? Really? Yes. We both liked it. Now, Highland Park has changed over the years, but at the time, there was only one Highland Park in, in 1980, or at least it seemed to me there was only one, and I, we both quite liked it. I'm going to have to get a bottle now, yeah. <laughs> just, just to see what it's I, uh, been a long time. But uh, I, I also like bourbon. Um, I don't drink a lot of these, but uh, every once in a while, it's sort of nice to have. I asked earlier about the most exciting time. What about the most challenging or difficult time you've had in your career? I think the most challenging time I've already talked about, which was when I was uh, an undergraduate. And I really, I really should have had somebody take me aside and say, stop being an idiot. 
just relax, ask people questions, and this is how you should probably approach things. I think I was too naive. I think I was, uh, I, I, and I, I talked myself out of things. I think that was the worst aspect about it. I had this idea that real scientists, whoever they may be, were somehow destined to be real scientists. There was something innate about it. And it, you know, there was the natural that, that seemed to be able to do it. And if you weren't that person, then you weren't very good. And I see this in undergraduates a lot. Uh, I was talking several years ago to the chair of the chemistry department, and he was saying how upset he and the other faculty members in the chemistry department were because undergraduates start off, the first course that they usually take is general chemistry. And he said there were these wonderful students that were there and they got a B on the first exam and they said, there, I've proven to myself, I'm not good enough to do this because they had said, I have to be perfect in order to get this. And I certainly sort of felt something like that when I was, an undergraduate. I, and, and I mean, it really is, I'm not perfect and I'm never going to get there. So I shouldn't be doing this. And I, I, it, it's really unfortunate. So I would say that that was probably the most challenging part of, 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 of this is, is sort of talking myself out of something that I really enjoyed. Um, so I'm going to take you back to when you were about the age of 12. What did you want, what job did you want to do when you were a young child? I had no idea what I wanted to do. I certainly liked math. I liked the sciences. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed finding out about the sciences. So I, I probably thought I was going to do science of some sort, science or math, but I, I had no real, idea about what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, I knew I wanted to be grown up, but I didn't know what I wanted to be. So when you when you left academia, uh, and, and I know you ended up selling dresses, I think in your parent shop, where did you see your career going then? What, what did you think you might like to do at that point? So after I decided that I wasn't gonna be a scientist, I had a wonderful final year in college where I took courses on all sorts of subjects that were just interesting to me. And then I even took some courses afterwards in, in sociology. And then I decided I'm not gonna do this. And I, I did a whole series of one month jobs and I didn't really have a clue as to what I wanted to do or where I was going to go. Uh, I knew I needed to get jobs had to pay for things like food and rent and, and things like that. But I, I didn't have particularly any goal. And um, these, uh, the, the dress selling job was a wonderful job by, uh, uh, from an unfortunate situation. My father got ill and um, the family business, which had been set up by my mother's mother. My grandmother was a remarkable person. Um, and it was a family business. Uh, at the time, my 
grandmother, but mainly my mother, ran the business, the office, the dress manufacturing part of it. And an uncle and my father were the salespeople that would take the line of dresses all around the country. And my father's part of the country was from Chicago to the East Coast. And uh, he got ill and he couldn't take the line around. And I was, it, so I had finished college. I wasn't doing anything. I just finished one of the one month jobs I had been working on. And so I was the one that was gonna go do this. So I took the line around all these shops and I learned a, an enormous amount of, about my father uh, that I just, I'm so grateful that I did this because I hadn't really understood what he was doing. He had a very interesting way of selling things. And that was, there would be one store in the town that he would sell to. Now, if the town was fairly small and that was the one store, that was fine. But New York City only had one store that he sold to, and Boston only had one store that he sold to. And these the, the type of dresses were for uh, professional women and wives of executives. And this is the early, early uh, it was 1970. Um, and so they were fairly expensive. So these were special, we were called specialty shops. And my father, not only had just one place that he was out, but he never tried to oversell anything so that when he, when he came by, people knew exactly what they were going to get. They had had years and years, in some cases decades, of an association with him and what knew what it was. And so when I came, there was no selling. I had well, I know how to sell these things. I would simply walk in open up the collection and the owner and the buyers and the salespeople would take a look at them and they say, you know, Mrs. Brown would like this one in green and uh, Mrs. Smith would like that one in red and uh, Mrs. Schwartz, she'd like that one in blue. And they had all their customers in mind. They'd order just enough to sell the people they knew they were going to sell. The, Items would come into their store and in due course, they display them. And then other people would say, oh, I'd like that. What colors does that come in? And then there'd be another round of ordering. And everybody was happy. And it was the easiest job for me to do because I just went from one place to another and just opened it up and then sat there while they decided what they wanted because they, my father had built up this amazing trust with them. And, and that was really wonderful to see. Uh, there was actually one new person my father wanted me to see. And I went to see him. I, my parents had called this guy up two or three times. Our son is coming. He's going to show you stuff. He, this is not what he usually does. And, everything. and the man later told my father that when I came in, it was clear that I'd had, he, he knew I, I knew nothing about the dress business and so, and he said, I felt sorry for him. So I bought three items and it was the best thing I ever did because people 
would see them in my showroom and they kept ordering them and ordering and ordering. So he felt he was being kind to me <laughs> for, for doing this. And he became a, a, a good friend of my father's and, 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 a, and a good customer. Uh, but it was very interesting seeing this no pressure sales approach and trying to build up a rapport that was my father's way of interacting with people. And it was just quite wonderful to see that at first hand. I, I think it's fascinating to see how parents work and how they operate. It's different to how they're at home and different management styles. Uh, I, I did not want to be in the dress manufacturing business. I had no idea what I was going to do, but that was not what I was going to be. For one month, I was very happy to do this. I really didn't know what I was going to do until I was, as I said, I was teaching school. I, uh, and then got this job working in a lab. And the thing, I didn't talk about that experience, but it was quite wonderful. I had mentioned Woody Hastings before as, as a person that I had really respected. I had taken a course in my junior year from, from Woody Hastings and I had to write a paper for this course. And in writing, the, I wrote this paper on some work that had been done um, with a particular type of ion transport. I later found the paper. I guess I had kept it. I did not get a very good grade on the paper, but I remembered what it was about. In any case, I hear about this job working for a man named Jose Zerunaisky at Yale. And I go to see Jose, and he starts telling me about his work. And he's working on an absolutely fascinating problem. One that I had never realized was a biological problem. And I now use this every once in a while in my talks. And I say to people, you know, the first place I had a published paper, I was working on the transparent part of the body. How many of you in the audience know what the transparent part of the body is? If you know, don't say it, but just raise your hand. And I see people looking at their wrists and you know, what is the transparent part of the body? And about five to 10% of the people raise their hand. And I say, well, I'll give you a hint. It's right in front of your eyes. And eventually people start to realize that it's the cornea or the lens and you can get more complicated than that, but the cornea. And that's what he was working on. He was working on the cornea and how it, maintained its transparency. And he was telling me that in frog, where they use the cornea from, that this was a chloride transport, that chloride was shunted out of the cornea because there had to be a certain amount of hydration. Unfortunate people that scratch their corneas, they become swollen and they become sort of opaque, and which is a problem. But if this pump is working, chloride gets shunted out, potassium file follows the chloride ions, water follows that. And so there's a certain amount of dehydration. And this is tested this is an easy way of testing how fast the transport is going by a machine made by a Swedish or an apparatus made by a Swedish scientist, Using. It's called an oozing chamber. Basically, you put the membrane, in this case the cornea, between two 
reservoirs and you look at it, you measure the amount of current because the chloride is negative charges moving across it. And you figure out how much current do I need to put in the opposite direction to bring it to zero. It's called the short circuit current because you bring it to zero. And so the more the transport, the more current you need in the other direction. And you can measure this. And so he's telling me about this. This is what they do in the lab. And I remember the paper I had written as an undergraduate on transport. Now I got a lot of the details wrong because they weren't working on frogs as he was, they were working on toads. They weren't looking at chloride transport like he was, they were looking at sodium transport. And um, it was not the cornea, it was skin. So completely different system, but they used the same chamber and that's what I remembered. And I remembered their conclusion. I, they had found that their transport could be turned on by ways of increasing cyclic AMP. And so I asked Jose in my interview, does cyclic AMP have anything to do with this? And he looked really surprised and said, I, I don't know, but you're the second person in two days to ask me that question. And so I, I said, okay, great. Uh, and I think it's because I asked him a question in the interview that he decided to hire me. So I consider that the first miracle. <laughs> and I get hired in the lab and he gives me a project that even I thought then was a little bit boring, but I'm gonna work in the lab. And then a couple of days after I start working in the lab, he comes in and announces to everyone, goodbye, I'm spending the whole summer in France working on fish. I'll see you in September. And he leaves. So now I'm alone. Well, not really. There's a postdoc in the lab who knows how to set up the apparatus, can help me on that. I find the other person who had asked the question about cyclic AMP. He was a postdoc in a different lab. And I go to him and I say, if you were going to test cyclic AMP as, as a mediator, huh, what would you do? And he said, well, I would throw adrenaline on the, the system and see what happens. I said, okay, I, I can do that. I set up the experiment. I put adrenaline and the thing went off scale. I spent the whole rest of the summer doing my experiments, not doing the experiments that I had been told to do, hired to do. And I went to the library and I looked up literature and everything. And so when Jose came back in September, he, he said, so tell me what, because it's 1970, there's no email, there's no faxes, there's, he didn't even want me to send him regular mail letters. So he didn't know what I was doing at all. I love it, Ray. What? How worried were you? You, you got off piste. Yeah. <clears throat> so worried? What? Were you worried about it when you're going to tell him that? <laughs> no, no, said. because I had results. I wasn't <laughs> worried at all. Um, I, was, I was a little naive, but <laughs> maybe stupid. But I, but he came back and I said, he said, well, what happens with potassium? And I said, I didn't do those experiments. He looked a little surprised. I said, 
but I did these experiments and I've gotten this information from the library and here's, here's what we had. And he was very happy with that. And that did become my first publication. Uh, how I had the nerve to do all of that, I'm not entirely sure. Somebody once told me this wonderful, horrible line that somehow derives from W.H. Auden, who said something somewhat similar, which is everyone likes the smell of their own farts. And you like your own ideas, whatever, how badly your ideas smell, you like them. And so I think this idea of, of being able to pursue this, to go and, and just try to do the experiment and having the experiment work, that was really exciting. That was a real surprise. I actually got something to work. And that's what convinced me to become a graduate student and to continue on in science. That, you know, sometimes you can get ideas and the ideas will work. Even if the ideas come from the completely wrong direction, sometimes things work out and it's very exciting when they do. Marty, we are just at the hour mark. And I have to ask some quick questions because okay, I'll try to give quick to know what they are. If you could do any job today, what would it be? You know, I quite like the job I have. I, 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 I really do like working in a lab. I really like working with students. That's an excellent. And I have answer. to say, and I have to say that the Nobel has had one really amazing consequence. Uh, I don't know why, but people ask me to be part of other enterprises. And one that I have really enjoyed has been, I, I'm the chair of the Committee on Human Rights of the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine in the US. And being able to see the people that are so devoted to other people and their rights and concerns and, and everything has been really wonderful to be part of that. Uh, so um, I think, you know, when people get a Nobel, sometimes you know, think to yourself, you know, now I have to do something. <laughs> I have to, to, to make this worthwhile. And this has been an, an incredible opportunity to get to meet some amazing people and to lend a hand. Uh, helping other people. So I, I, I'm, I sort of like what's, what's happened to my life. Okay. I would love to be a professional guitarist, but I'm never gonna get to that place, so that's okay. Early bird or night owl? Sorry? Early bird or night owl? Oh, definitely early bird, way too early, and then I fall asleep during the day. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite TV show? Um, one of the TV shows I really liked was a three-season series show from Canada called Slings and Arrows. Of no that. idea. It, Don't worry. It, it's about a Canadian Shakespeare or theater company that puts on a different major Shakespearean play for each year and each one of the seasons. And it, it's very, it's very, very good. Okay. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. For many years, and I'd still say it is, 
that man from Rio with Jean-Paul Bonando. Also, um, oh, I'm blinking on the name. Um, I won't remember the other movies <laughs> that some some old one, but but that man from Rio is it was definitely one of my uh, all time uh, favorites. Favorite book? Favorite book is Dear Committee Member by Julie Schumacher, which is one of the funniest books I've ever read. It it's it's a it's it it's something that all academics. It, it, should read and should enjoy. It is an epistolary novel, but the letters that are the basis of the novel are all letters of recommendation, spanning one year by a uh, English professor. And my wife and I give this book as presents to <laughs> almost anybody. And when we do, people usually write back and say, I want to write letters like this guy is writing letters. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. Dear committee member by Julie Schumacher. Final quick fire question. What's your favorite color? Favorite color, you know, you'd, you'd expect me to say green, but it's actually blue. I, and is that origami behind you? The... Yes. And it's blue and white. So I, I it's blue and white, yes. Yes. Uh, for a while there, I, I was, I, there were a couple of books of making sort of geometric figures uh, with origami. And uh, now my hand doesn't work quite as well as it should. So that's something from the past. Okay. So finally, I, I know we were over time. Do you have any top tips for anyone? I think you've actually given lots of top tips, which I, I, which I get, I just try it. Be adventurous and try it, I guess. I think not talking oneself out of things is, I think is, is the most thing, is, is the best. I think the other thing is to ask questions. We, we, I, it, it is always surprising to me how much we don't ask questions about the world around us. The example from the cornea is one of these. We've all been looking through our eyes, hopefully, and we, but, and, but asking the question, even though maybe 10% of the people will be able to ask, ask the question, what is the transparent part of the body? I've actually never met anyone else that has said, you know, I've often wondered what makes the cornea transparent. It's just one of those questions that's been out there, but we don't ask questions about it. And I think asking questions, asking questions about our assumptions. Uh, uh, I have a former colleague, uh, wonderful scientist, Mu Ming Pu, uh, neurobiologist. And uh, I remember one day we were talking and I said, Mu Ming, you've had, or somebody said, Mu Ming, you've had so many wonderful ideas and at the basis of really great discoveries. Where do you get your ideas? And he said, well, and he said his secret was that he took a textbook, in his case, the second edition of Molecular Biology of the Cell. And he read, he says, I read through the textbook and I simply ask myself the question, what's the evidence behind this statement? And I try to find out what the evidence is. 
And if the evidence isn't strong, I do the experiment. And he was making great discoveries because we do base a lot of our ideas on previous experiments that are extensions of what we think is happening in the world. We change what we know. And so questioning ourselves, questioning our assumptions and uh, looking at things in a number of ways. The other thing is, um, there's this wonderful line uh, by Enrico Fermi that goes something to the effect that if you do an experiment and it confirms your hypothesis, then you've made a measurement. But if it doesn't confirm your hypothesis, then you've made a discovery. And so the discoveries are the unexpected things. That means you have to do a lot of experiments and be surprised at the unexpected results and think about them. They do come, they may be important, they may not be important, but it's those surprises that lead into the new directions that, that people have. So being aware that things are not gonna work exactly the way you think they are, and maybe that's telling you something important. Are, are you never skeptical when the result comes so quickly? I'm always skeptical when the result looks too perfect. So when I was a graduate student, I worked with John Solston, who is one of the absolute great people and great experimentals. And one day I came to him all excited about a result that I had. And I told him the result and it was this wonderful thing. It's stuff we had been working on, it worked, it was great. I was super enthusiastic about it. And then I repeated it the next day and of course it didn't work. And I went to John all apologetic and I said, John, I, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have not been as enthusiastic. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, I actually never believe a thing you say unless I've heard it three times. And that was his rule for everything, that if he heard of a result three times, then he believed it, but not. And I think it may come from the hunting of the snark where I, I think it's the carpenter says, I've told you this now three times, it must be true. But I think it's a really good thing. I think people should be enthusiastic about what they're doing get really excited about the result and then repeat it. And if you can say it three times, if you find the result three times, that's terrific. So the enthusiasm has to stay there. I guess on that note, we'll have to do this podcast three times over, but we are <laughs> out of time. Marty, thank you very much for joining me today. And thank you everyone for listening or watching. And please don't forget to subscribe to The Microscopists on whatever media you're listening to it. Marty, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.